When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the, agent, when the angel came near, came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come over you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with me on favor on on those lowest of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled up the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abram, Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. Amen. The Magnificat, yeah, these are the words of Mary that have leapt off the pages for a long time. This poem, this song that Mary sings is extremely radical. And we often uh, hear of the announcements of Jesus' birth stripped of their political context. But Jesus was born into an absolute political morass of violence, of occupation, of domination and fear. And Mary here welcomes the birth announcement of Jesus from the angel by saying, yes, I believe liberation here, now, and forever. I love the Magnificat. It's so good. It's so good. And I know that it's sometimes hard to understand exactly the spirit of what Mary's saying because everything in the Bible ends up sounding a little bit the same. Right? Like it's not in modern language, and so it all kind of bleeds together a little bit. 
But I wanna back us up to what this season of Advent is fully about. Advent is a season of anticipation, of announcement, of saying Jesus is coming. Now, this is just like, you know, one more notch on uh, the, the list of never-ending paradoxes of the Christian faith. Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. Jesus was forever and will be also on his way. Right? <laughs> Simple. And most Christians can't understand trans people. But we hold all of these tensions, right? We say things are not black and white. And actually a huge part of the invitation to faith is understanding that we can live in the now and in the forever all at once. Advent is like that on a small scale. We know that Jesus is here. We know that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And yet the call of Advent is to say, Jesus is coming to say that with delight and anticipation and hope, to be fully immersed in that part, that moment of the story of God's creation, the moment before Jesus came, the moment when the longing was bright, but so was the hope and the promise. Jesus is coming. Has anybody ever heard of the term vacation anticipation? Vacation. I'm a big fan of vacation anticipation. They did a study in 2010 of 1,500 Dutch adults, and they found that those going on a vacation experienced the highest level of happiness in the weeks and months before the trip. <laughs> vacation anticipation. It actually competes with the effects of being able to take a real trip. The hope, the possibility, the promise of relief of rest, of fun, of delight, of connection. The promise matters. And this is why Jesus doesn't just sneak up someday and say like, hey, here I am, but invites us to participate in hope, in anticipation, in looking ahead and saying, what does it mean for me to live the joy now of what is to come? How can that joy manifest itself fully in my life? How can I experience the elation of Jesus coming, of the liberation of all creation here and now before it has happened as though it has happened? That is Advent. Welcome to the paradox of faith. We live as though we have seen the end of the story. We know what the end is, right? At least this encapsulation of God's creation, the story of the life of Jesus. We know it ends with the resurrection. And yet we come alive to every moment on the journey, including the moment before the birth. We know that the story ends with God's victory. We know that the big picture of all creation ends with the reconciliation of all things to God, all things, all creatures, all people held in love. And so here in this moment, when that feels so far away, we are called to be alive to the now and to eternity. To say Jesus is coming. Liberation is coming. Reconciliation of all things is coming. And to feel the elation and joy and victory of that right here and now in the midst of the brokenness and pain and wounding and violence of this moment. We are called to experience the whole story. These themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, love, these things are real as we make them real. 
These things are coming and here and now. The joy that we long for is promised. It will come whether we participate in it now or not. The end of the story is written. God is victorious and all is made well. And yet we have an opportunity, an invitation to participate now, to feel it coming, to announce it, and to make it real in our hearts and our bodies. Jesus has not been born yet. Jesus has not returned yet. But the anticipation allows us to live as though Jesus has already come and has already come back. To live now as though the story is complete. This may be a hard thing to kind of picture, right? How do we live in both of those places at once? But thank God, we have models. We have examples. And one of the most beautiful examples of living in the fullness of time that we see in the story of Jesus' birth is his mother, Mary. Now, Gabriel comes to her with this news. Hey, I know, don't be afraid. I'm here with you. And I've got some news that's gonna change your life. Now the news that she's receiving could cause her to to feel a lot of different things. Fear, sorrow, despair, shame. She is in a culture, she is unmarried. She's in a culture that offers her a secure and stable protected life only if she can come into a marriage without children presumably without a sexual history, and and secure her financial well-being, her social well-being, her safety through a transactional marriage. She's already got one lined up. Joseph is like in the wings. And the angel is coming to tell her that all of those things, every step of her life that has been put in place to keep her safe and to help her live well in her cultural context is about to be shattered. Shattered. She could be shamed. She could be rejected by Joseph. She doesn't know how he's going to react. She could react in a lot of different ways. She's a vulnerable person in a very complex system full of of oppression that all points itself in one way or another towards her. She is precarious. And God comes to her and says, hey, I'm going to make your life so much more complicated. So what does she do? What does Mary do in this moment? Now, this week, we are talking about joy, and I'd like to take a moment to distinguish happiness from joy. Happiness is a sort of uh, temporal emotion, right? Hopefully, we've all experienced happiness at some point. It is a kind of brightness, a kind of openness. It often comes with connection, even surprise. Happiness is relatively superficial. It's lovely, I love to be happy. I wish happiness on all of you. But happiness is somewhat external. It tends to be highly contextual, situational. It comes from other people and places, things, experiences that touch in on us. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is so lovely. But happiness fades. 
It comes in and out of the scene. Joy, by contrast, is cultivated. Joy is chosen. Joy is a deeper state of being. It is less susceptible to change. Joy is a lens through which we interpret our world. An orientation, a set of interpretive choices. So Mary here is faced with some choices to make. How do I receive this information? How do I receive this invitation to be a part of something terrifying and holy? Have you ever been there? At a crossroads? At an invitation? At a moment of choice? How do I receive this? Mary says, yes, and. Mary brings her best improv skills, her gratitude, her lens of joy, and says, yes, I see. I may not actually see or understand, but I choose to believe that this is a part of a bigger thing that you are doing, God. She says, I am not alone. I see the full picture. This is one piece of something massive that is happening, and I believe in the goodness of God. I choose to see the wholeness of what is happening here, to be joyful that I am a part of something huge. Gabriel says to her, don't be afraid, right? This is a theme every week. Do not be afraid. Again, not an admonition, not, not like, hey, you're bad for being afraid, but an invitation again, release your fear. Do not let fear rule you. Lay it down so that you can find that deep joy, that sense of self, that part of you that was created at the beginning of time that is in this huge story. Find the part that you play in the whole of creation and delight in it. Do not be afraid. And Mary has so, so many reasons to be afraid. The text even says that she could be a public disgrace. She's unwed, she's young. She could lose her future, her fiance, her security, her honor through all of this. Now, the angel is saying, hey, all of this is happening. Subtext, I know this is gonna go badly for you. <laughs> but God has favor in you. You have found favor with God. The angel is inviting Mary to that bigger picture because she knows she has lost favor with everyone in her life through this. Everyone. But the angel says, you have found favor in God. Rest in that. Put your hope in that. How can this be? So much must be happening in Mary's body in this moment. And our bodies are fascinating and wild. They're capable of doing so much. Our nervous systems send all kinds of messages to us to help us interpret. One of the layers that we have is our interpretive choices, whether we choose joy, a joyful interpretation, hope. But a lot is happening under the surface before our brains even get to working, before our brains can interpret, our bodies are sending all kinds of signals. And I remember years ago being told that the signals that your body sends, the, the physiological experiences associated with nervousness 
are actually like very parallel to the physiology of excitement. And I remember being extremely, extremely nervous about something that I needed to do and getting the advice, tell your body, tell your friends, tell yourself in the mirror, I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited. I knew it was kind of a hack, right? I knew that it was like a fake it till you make it moment. And yet, my body was giving me some feedback and I got to choose where to go with it. Do I approach this with fear? Or do I approach this with a joyful excitement? And I, I hate to tell you it because it feels so silly, but it like really worked. <laughs> It super worked as a hack, 10 out of 10 would recommend. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And like where you go with this, where you go with this is all going to be context dependent, but it is about taking an active choice in your own body, in your own interpretation of the world to say, I am a part of something. I am a part of something holy. I am not alone. God is with me and I am in this. And that is what Mary does. She says, all right. Okay, Gabriel. I'm so excited. (laughs) But she does. She says, let it be. Let it be just as you have said. And with her yes and, with her like, okay, I'm on board. I'll get there. Let's go. I see what you're doing. She turns that fear, that terror, that would be so natural for anyone in her position into a kind of joy. It can be really hard in the midst of a lot of turmoil if somebody encourages, encourages you to like choose joy. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person in your life, in your head. I think hopefully by now we've all heard of the term toxic positivity, right? Joy is not about minimizing pain. Joy is not about gaslighting you about your circumstances, Gabriel is not here to say this is going to be easy or you have nothing to be afraid of. Gabriel is offering her a different kind of way. And so we have to walk that fine line of acknowledging exactly what is happening now, exactly what the stakes are, who is vulnerable, what our fears are and why, not invalidate them, and hear the invitation to a framework of eternity, to a joyful choice to be a part of what God is doing. There is a famous mystic named Julian of Norwich. One of her writings includes the line, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. It's something that I hear folks quoting. I've, I've heard it for a long time. And actually, I've got to be honest with you, for a long time, it annoyed me. Because so I was like, um, all is not well. All is very not well. And many manners of things are not well. And I got really upset because I was like, what is this? It, you know, it was kind of pulled out of context, right? So I did a little bit of digging. And I found this this mystic, this woman who had been through a lot, including some very serious illnesses, some terror in her own body, and a closeness to the divine that actually brought her immediately into that moment, that survival moment in her own body, and out to the wholeness of eternity. 
the more I understood the, the depth of the pain actually she experienced at looking at the violence of the world. She was not trying to cover over anything at all. She was interpreting the world and saying, actually, the sin, and that was her language, right? The sin of the world, by which she meant the violence, the generational trauma, the cycles of domination and pain. The sin of the world is so great that, that hell itself would be preferable to the sin of the world. She was saying that it is a kind of spiritual violence that causes that cyclical harm. To one who recognizes the horror of that harm, sin itself is hell, she writes. And to me was shown no harder hell than sin itself. For a kind soul has no hell but sin. She is alive, fully, to the violence of the world and condemns it as hell itself. And yet, and yet she says, all is well. All is well and all manner of things will be well. I hear her voice like a parent watching a scary movie with a child. Julian has seen the end and it might be terrifying right now. It might feel extremely bleak right now, but I know how this ends. All will be well. All will be well. She writes, And I saw full surely that ere God made us, he loved us, which love was never lacking, nor shall ever be. And in this love, he has made all his works. And in this love, he has made all things profitable to us, and in this love, our life is everlasting, in which love we have our beginning. And all this shall we see in God without end. All will be well. She is deeply pained by the sin of the world, but sees the full picture. And in that way, chooses to be joyful in all circumstances. Because she says, everything will be made right, healed, made whole by the God who loves us, who created us in and for love. How can I be anything but joyful when I hold the wholeness of creation in my heart? When I see the love at the beginning and at the end surrounding all of it, the hell, the pain, the suffering of this moment is in a context, a context of everlasting love. We cannot lose sight of that. And so we are alive to the pain of this moment, but we are just as alive to the joy, the love of God, of salvation, of liberation everlasting, then to come and hear now. We are alive in this moment and in eternity. Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, fail to pity the child of her womb? Even these may forget, but I won't forget you. These are the words of God to us. This is why God is always encouraging us to remember God, to zoom out, to see that whole story. Yes, right now is very real. Right now is excruciating. 
and right now is holy, right now is joyful. Whatever joy you feel in this present moment is a part of an eternal joy beyond our comprehension and yet the very thing we are called to proclaim with every part of our being. I see it, I believe, yes, and I am a part of a story of everlasting joy. And this moment is a part of that story. It deserves my full presence, as does the beginning and the end, the bookending of the joy that creates us. Reverend Clint Walker, reflecting on Julian of Norwich, says, joy is a grateful optimism that, as Julian of Norwich said, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Joy is the ability to see, to stay in alignment with, and to celebrate what God is doing in the world, and how God's kingdom is moving forward, even in awful circumstances. We trust, and this is what Mary does with her incredible song, the Magnificat. She trusts. She sees the whole story, now, God is calling her to something difficult. Joseph might leave. She knows that her kid is going to be a little weird, right? Like this kid is going to have a difficult life, a different life than she had probably already been dreaming about and hoping for for her own family. Prophets and messiahs have messy, difficult, often short lives. Mary, did you know? Probably she probably did. She knew because she was told that her, her kid was going to be son of the most high and that his kingdom will reign forever. What else did Gabriel tell her that didn't make it into the text? How long was that conversation? Did she ask a thousand questions? Did she get any answers? Did Gabriel tell her that the Romans would come after him? He probably didn't have to. She was living under occupation. You see, the Israelites, the Judeans as they were known, were an occupied people, occupied by a nation state with the greatest military backing in the world. Now when Mary says that God shows favor on all from generations to generations. It is an invitation to look in every moment that we are in for that power dynamic. Who is occupied now? Who is Mary now? Where would the son of the most high have been in today's landscape? But we see Mary, a young woman in an occupied land, in daily fear of a military force in her homeland. Yes, the Romans would have a problem with Jesus. They would have, even if he wasn't a prophet or a Messiah. But now, how much more does her child have a target on his back? Did Gabriel tell her? That she would watch her child die as so many are watching their children die today in Palestine. Did Gabriel tell her that she would watch him be tortured and beaten to death 
One commenter writes, this is the beginning of a story of pain and humiliation that will lead her son, lead to her son being condemned to death as a criminal. Does she know? Probably. But she knows so much more. She knows so much more. She knows the whole picture. She knows that her God is a God of the powerless. She knows that God is making a choice to come to her and to her people in this moment. She sings about it. She says, the mighty will be cast down from their thrones and the lowly lifted up. And when we hear that, that's a phrase, that's an idea common to the Gospel of Luke. Folks call it the great reversal. That encourages us to think of a literal reversal where the power dynamics don't change at all, but now someone else is at the top and someone else is at the bottom. And we don't have to think about that very long before that actually sounds pretty bad. I think most of us have seen patterns throughout history where if we just take those folks who have been most oppressed and put them at the top of structures that leave others so oppressed, we have solved nothing for ourselves as a creation. But that is not what Mary is saying here. When Mary says the hungry will be filled with good things, the rich will go empty-handed. It is because the rich already have full bellies. The rich are not to go hungry either. The mighty are cast down from their thrones because who needs a throne in the kingdom of God? The unempire has no place for thrones. That is earthly imperial nonsense. The kingdom of God has a communalism where all are well and all things will be well. And so when the mighty are cast down and the lowly lifted up, we find ourselves finally at long last together again. If you've been around for some weeks, you've heard me preach before and again and again that with everything going on in the Middle East right now, in Palestine, in Israel, that there are coalitions of Palestinians and Israelis who have been advocating, laboring, crying out, praying for, a ver for generations now for a world in which they can live together, a one-state solution politically speaking, but one in which people of different faiths and backgrounds can actually live together and be good to one another. And this is such anathema to empire that it's not even on the table. The best we can say is we will have one nation over here and one nation over here. When the people at the heart, including many people in Bethlehem, are saying, we want to be together we want to be a people together. This is the promise of God and of the kingdom, saying these systems that separate us, that cause so much violence and harm and terror, they will be leveled. And we can be made whole. We can be a people together with our many differences, which will not be erased, but held in unity, unity in difference. Now Mary 
has seen the whole picture. Mary proclaims it. She knows that God is turning history on its head. She knows that God is upending social order. She may even know that it's gonna take millennia. But she sings as though that future that is promised is happening right now. Mary, in that moment of so much turmoil, sings a song of vindication. She sings like she has heard, proclaimed, seen the end of the story. She even mixes up her tenses. She doesn't say God will cast the mighty down. She says God has cast the mighty down. God has lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things. God has sent the rich empty-handed. Here is a humiliated young woman living under occupation in a culture that is so ready to reject her for a litany of reasons, singing a song of vindication. Here she is about to have an extremely difficult, unimaginably, uh, unimaginably painful life, singing a song of unequivocal victory because she does know She knows that her story is no tragedy. She knows that her story is the story of all creation. God is good. Creation is made whole. We are united in love by the creator who loved us into being. When we enter into joy, we choose to be a part of the fullness of that story whatever the complications of our present moment, of our current role. We say yes. We recognize we are not alone. We lay down our fear and we orient ourselves towards joy. We choose to participate in this tradition that we see Mary emulating every time we end a prayer with the word amen. Amen which has sort of become ubiquitous in our culture without us really talking about what it means, has a lot of different interpretive meaning. Some folks say amen is like, may it be so, or let it be so. But amen is something else as well. Rather than may it be so, a more literal translation would be something like, so it is. It is a declaration of reality, the way things truly are in the fullness, as though the ways of the world are intrusions here and the way of the kingdom is the most true. So it is. Amen. Yes, it has happened. And as we pour out our prayers for God's love, for intervention, for healing, for hope, for protection, we also say it has been done. It has been done by the God who loves us. It has been finished. Victory is ours. And by ours, we mean all of creation. Victory belongs to God. Victory has come. It is already decided. It has already been done. Love has won. Amen. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God. May your prophets, including Mary, speak truth to us. May we offer back the same kind of confidence. May we hold the paradox of our lives, this moment, our fears, our doubts, our uncertainty, and the certainty of your love.
May our bodies, alive to this moment, also remember the love of our own origins and the love that culminates in all creation, whole, together, and sacred. God, you are good. God, you have saved us. God, you have liberated us. God, you have protected us. God, you have made us whole. Amen, amen, amen.